Does anybody here today know the minimum salary for a rookie in the NFL? Let's play a little game. We'll start easy. According to ZipRecruiter, the average salary for a lawyer in the United States is between $63,000 and $130,000. So raise your hand if you think an NFL rookie is paid more than a lawyer. Okay? The average salary of a medical doctor in the United States is between $130,000 and $360,000. So let's take that high end of $360,000. Raise your hand if you think a first-year NFL player's base salary is higher than that. The salary of the president of the United States is $400,000. Raise your hand if you think a rookie in the NFL makes more than that. They actually do. Actually, they make a lot more money than that. In 2023, the minimum wage for a rookie in the NFL is $750,000. Now, compare that to the minimum wage for a first-year soldier in the Army. Uh, the lowest rank private, a private E1, can expect to be paid $23,011.20 per year. In contrast, an NFL player at that league minimum who is paid on the 1st and 15th would receive $31,250 Per pay period. More per pay period than the soldier makes annually. Does that upset you a little bit? How can a soldier, who is offered to spend entire years at a time of his or her life on deployment, who has long work hours even when stateside and could face serious injury or even death in the line of duty get paid so little, when their work provides us peace and safety and security, compared to an athlete who admittedly risks injury, and whose job certainly requires sacrifice and dedication, but ultimately who has an off-season to relax, and whose job it is to entertain. Since we're talking about the NFL, here's another comparison for you. This year, Aaron Rodgers has a salary of $37.5 million as quarterback for the Jets. Of course, he suffered a season-ending injury only a minute and 34 seconds into the game after only playing four snaps. So if you only pay him for the time he played, that means he earned about $399,000 per second. Or if you want to be absolutely accurate, I did the math. That's $1,436,170,212.77 per hour. Meanwhile, the average American will earn $1.7 million in their entire lifetime. If you're prickling a little bit, I'm not surprised. It just doesn't seem fair, does it? We humans have a nose for fairness that is far more sensitive than a bloodhound's or a shark's. From when we're little on, we care very much about equality and fairness. It's foundational to how we understand the world and how we expect the world to work. We expect to be rewarded for hard work and goodness. It's really the foundation of the American dream, right? Work hard and you'll have success and wealth and happiness. We can even wrap our minds around suffering when it's fair. If I get caught going 15 over and get a speeding ticket, well, fair is fair, right? On the other hand, when laws don't seem fair, we don't feel like we need to obey them. When rulings aren't fair, we complain. When you get a ticket for 15 over, but I only get a warning, how does it feel? When a boss isn't fair, we don't feel the need to work very well for them. Think back to your childhood. What was one of the very biggest complaints you could ever make to your parents? Mom, Dad, you're not being fair. This deep-down desire we have for fairness is a display of something that theologians call the opinio legis. That's Latin for opinion of the law. It's the default setting of our human hearts by nature before we come to faith. It's the idea that if we do good, we deserve good things, and if we do bad, we deserve bad things. 
It builds on our natural knowledge of God's moral law in our consciences and assumes that if I do good, the only fair thing is for me to be rewarded and does concede that if I do evil, it's fair for me to expect to be punished if at least I don't have a good excuse. When things don't happen in line with that framework, we get upset because it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. That's exactly what happens in the story that Jesus tells us today, though. A story that's supposed to confront our ideas of fairness with God's good and gracious generosity. Jesus tells us a story about a vineyard owner who needed some extra help. This was pretty common at harvest time for vineyard owners to look for extra hands, you know, seasonal laborers. laborers. So when it came time to harvest and there was more work than he could manage by himself or with his full-time staff, the owner in this story goes looking for some people to work in his vineyard. He found some workers and hired them for a fair wage, a denarius, for each of them for their day of work. This was the commonly accepted going rate for a day laborer. So basically a fair day's wages. To put it into today's terms, we could probably take minimum wage in Virginia, which I googled is $12 an hour, and multiply it by a nice long agricultural 12-hour workday and come up with $144. Since I like whole numbers, and since we'll find out later that the landowner is generous, let's round that up to $150. So he goes out and hires some workers and agrees to pay them $150 to work for him for the day. Fair deal, right? The workers think so. They accept the terms and they go off and get to work. A couple hours later in the morning, the owner maybe realized he had more work than he had anticipated, so he went back out and found some more workers. This time it was around 9 a.m. He hired them and promised to pay them fairly for their work. As the day goes on, he decides he could use even more help two more times and goes out two more times to find more workers, once at noon and then again at three in the afternoon. Each time again, he promises to pay them for their work and they agree to work for him. Finally, at five o'clock in the evening, with only an hour before the end of the work day, he goes out one last time and finds some workers standing around unemployed. He asks them why they aren't doing anything, and they say, well, no one hired us. He hires this one last group on the spot to help with that final push. At six o'clock, it's time for everyone to go home for supper, but first they have to be paid. The landowner has his foreman pay them, but in reverse order of hire, beginning with the hands who were hired at five, going to the ones who were hired at daybreak. To everyone's surprise, the crew hired at the end of the day gets a whole day's pay, a whole denarius, 150 bucks. The workers hired earlier start to get their hopes up, because even though they had agreed to work for that denarius, now they're thinking they might get some more. But no, everyone gets the full day's pay, whether they began at the beginning or just at the very end. Now, this doesn't sit well with the workers who are hired at the beginning of the day. If we assume a 12-hour workday, that means that the people paid at the end of the day made 12 times the hourly rate that the people at the beginning of the day did. They got $150 an hour, while the first guys got $12.50 an hour. That's not fair. The landlord hears them grumbling and calls them out. This isn't unfair. Remember when I hired you? You agreed gladly to work for that denarius. Don't I have every right to do what I want with my own money? Which is it? Are you saying it wasn't a fair deal and you were lying this morning when you accepted our terms? Or are you just jealous of the guys who didn't work as long as you did? Jesus concludes his story with this famous quote, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Remember now, parables are stories that have deeper meanings, so Jesus tells them as a way of explaining how spiritual things work in terms that we can understand. But even then, a parable will have 
little to no meaning to someone without faith. An unbeliever won't find value in this, only nonsense or weakness. It doesn't make sense to them. That means this story is for you and me, believers, and it's intended to challenge you and me as believers. And this one is a pretty simple story, but it is one that absolutely does challenge us. Jesus wants us to see that God doesn't act the way we might expect him to. If we have our opinion legus and we expect the world to work fairly all the time, we would think the same way the first hires in the story would, wouldn't we? I mean, can't you relate to them? Would you really be fine if you worked all day and someone who came in at the last second got paid the same as you? What would you do? At a minimum, you'd be whiny about it and be grumpy about it in your head or go complain to a friend or your spouse at home. Maybe those of us who are bolder would speak up to the boss and call them out. It's not fair. What kind of attitude would you have if you went into work the next day? Sadly, we think like this spiritually as well. The spiritual parallels in this parable are pretty obvious, aren't they? The landowner is God our Heavenly Father, and he goes out and he gets people to work in his fields by calling them to faith through the gospel. So the workers are believers, you and me. And at the end, whether it's at the end of their lives or the very end on the last day, the reward for working in his kingdom, being a believer, is the same. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven, whether they had worked the whole day or just part of it. Once that was good enough for you. When God called you through the gospel and promised you forgiveness and a place with him in eternity, it was a fair deal. In fact, it was better than that. It was beyond generous. You, me, sinners like us, declared not guilty and brought to eternal peace? Absolutely the greatest deal ever. But then, like the first hires in the parable, we start to compare ourselves with others, and that's really where the problem starts, isn't it? When we take our eyes off God's promise and look at ourselves and others. I'll never forget one conversation I had with someone who was really upset about exactly this. It was during the winterim mini-semester between fall and spring semesters at the seminary. This was 2016. Instead of staying on campus for classes and doing schoolwork, I had opted to go with a group to St. George, Utah, to study the Mormon church and help with a mission congregation in that city. There's a beautiful Mormon temple in St. George. It's a gleaming white building with a spire and parapets set in the middle of a perfectly manicured square. As a non-Mormon, I wasn't allowed to go into the temple itself, but there was a visitor center I could explore. An elder from the Mormon church struck up conversation with me, and we talked about the Bible and a little bit about the Book of Mormon. I think Mormons are generally pretty glad to talk to Christians because they claim to believe the Bible like we do. He wanted to show me how God had revealed even more in the Book of Mormon and how compatible our faiths were and how really I could just become a Mormon by transitioning and understanding more like he did. The truth is, though, the Mormon religion is completely incompatible with Christianity. Not only do they have an entire additional book of false teaching, they misinterpret the Bible. Their whole religion is built on threats and rewards. It's built on fairness. It's built on the opinio legis. It's self-righteous. You must live a good life to advance in the next. It's all very fair. I'm not sure how we got there, but when I brought up passages in scripture that talk about being saved by faith alone, not by works, this elder actually got angry enough with me to almost begin to raise his voice. So you're telling me that you can live a sinful life of depravity and at the last moment turn to God and receive eternal life the same way I would after living my entire life righteously? I'm not telling you that, I said. God is. And the conversation kind of ended on that impasse. He was angry because it's not fair, is it? 
How can a worker who only worked an hour get paid the same as the worker who worked 12? Unbelievers like to throw these hypotheticals at Christians in an attempt to show how foolish our faith is too. Have you heard some of these? So if I murder someone but then say I'm sorry, I won't have to pay for my sin? What about Hitler? You're seriously telling me that it that if Adolf Hitler repented of his sin in his last moments, God would forgive him and bring him to heaven? Although we can expect this, because remember, parables don't make sense to an unbeliever. But be honest, even us believers often bristle at how unfair this is. So if my rapist believes in Jesus, I have to spend eternity in heaven with him too? God would actually forgive someone like Hitler or Osama bin Laden, even after all of their evil? It's so unfair. Maybe we even have ugly thoughts of jealousy toward people who have come to the faith after us. I wish I didn't know lust was a sin. I wish I didn't know envy was a sin. Then I could spend my time fantasizing guilt-free and just come to faith later and be saved anyways. I'm jealous of so-and-so. They get to do all the fun sins I want to do, whatever those sins might be for you. And I don't get to because, well, I came to faith too soon. You can see that this isn't healthy or God-pleasing to think like this. It's not how God works. It's not how his kingdom works. And it's not how a believer thinks. This is an ugly side of the opinio legis. It's work righteousness. It's this parable that is a stern warning against thinking like this. The landowner's scolding words to the grumbling hired hands could be the same words God uses to scold us when we get whiny about how unfair it seems. Didn't I hold up my agreement? Your sins are washed away by Jesus' blood, I said, and they are. Now you're upset with me because I want to offer the same forgiveness to others? Who are you to judge me on how I show my grace? Or are you just envious because the others got away with more sin? Yikes. Okay, when you find yourself arguing with God, you know that God's not the one in the wrong. It's you. It's just not our place to tell God how to share his grace. It's his. He gets to give it out how he sees fit. It's really not unlike an NFL team getting to pay their player how they see fit. We can disagree with it. We can think it's unfair. But it's ultimately not our place to tell them how to spend their money. It's as simple as that. You don't get to judge God, period. In God's world, what he says is right. Always. Amen? The rest of our problem, the reason we're tempted to judge God for being unfair, can be addressed by asking one pretty simple question. Are you aware of what you're wishing for when you grumble against God for being unfair? First, let's do away with the utterly ridiculous idea that it's somehow better to be an unbeliever till the second before you die, at which point you can quick repent, say you're sorry, and go to heaven with your sins forgiven. The foolish idea that that's really the best of both worlds, right? You get to live however you want with no consequences in the end. This is the jealousy that the landowner talks about. And when you put it like that, it just sounds so dumb, doesn't it? Ask any person who lived a long time in unbelief before coming to faith, and they'll tell you exactly how offensive and stupid that idea is. Are you aware of what you're wishing for? Are you really jealous that you had the comfort of salvation longer than that other person who came to faith after you? Do you really want to tell God you're angry with him because you want to sin against him more than you already have? Then, are we really aware of what we're wishing for when we insist that God treat us fairly? The parable tells us that God is generous. Would we really rather him only be just and fair? We might get caught up in this false notion that having faith or being Christian is some sort of work that we do that God owes us payment for. I was a believer for you, God. Now pay me what I'm due. 
That only sounds good to the self-righteous, sinful nature. Look at God's word, and you'll see what's fair. The soul that sins is the one that will die. No one will be justified by works of the law. All have fallen short. And most directly, if we're going to talk about fair wages, the wages of sin is death. So often we think in terms of God owing us payment for all the good we've done for him or the suffering we've endured for him, but what if he paid us back for the bad too? Is that really what we want to demand from God? There's probably nothing more foolish and nothing that shows unbelief more than that, more than demanding that God be fair with us. It's literally asking God to condemn us. Thankfully, God isn't fair. That's the whole point of this story. He's perplexingly generous. Before we start to think we deserve a reward for suffering for God, maybe we should think who really did the suffering. In his ultimate act of unfairness, God sent Jesus, who was perfect and deserved every reward, to the cross, to die to pay for all of our sins and the sins of the whole world. Instead of demanding fairness or comparing ourselves to others, could we maybe just focus on God's amazing, generous grace? He's the landowner in the story who just wants to pay out so badly that he keeps on going out and finding workers to pay. It doesn't matter when he finds them, he pays them the same because he wants to be generous. He doesn't care that the last hires probably didn't earn their pay. You can see love in that, can't you? It's exactly how God acts. He's doing the same. He went out and he found you and he invited you to work in his kingdom. What an honor. What a blessing. Like the workers in the parable, you had nothing to do with getting hired. You were standing around doing nothing. He found you. He chooses to reward you along with every other person who believes. And finally, let's think for a second about this reward. In the parable, it's a denarius, a day's wages. We decided to call it 150 bucks in today's money. That means the last hired workers made $150 an hour, while the first hires made $12.50. And that's a pretty big difference, proportionally, if the total pay is only $150. But let's do the math with God's reward for believers. And it's not $150. The wages that God has agreed to give us through faith in Jesus are priceless. They're infinite. What could possibly be more than that? And if you say infinity plus one, my inner third grader salutes you. And I guess mathematicians might agree, but come on, just go with me. Our wages are infinite. There's nothing that can be more. What could God give you beyond his son? We have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, strength, companionship in this life. There's no price you can put on that. Divide that by one hour and you have infinity. Divide it by 12 hours and you still have infinity. I personally was baptized in April of 1989. That's over 302,000 hours of faith for me. Divide infinity by 302,000 and you still get the same answer you would if you divide infinity by one second, assuming someone comes to faith a second ago. The blessing literally can't be more. It's infinite. And now when you think about it that way, God's generosity isn't confusing or perplexing because he shows it to everyone equally. It's confusing and perplexing because he shows it to anyone at all. When we focus on God's generosity to us instead of comparing ourselves with others, we can stop feeling like we've been shorted like the first hires did and instead skip straight to marveling at our good fortune like those who were hired last. We're a little church here and we're looking to grow, God willing. Most of us in the room have been Christian for a long time, and that means if we're serious about growing, we're going to have to accept that God's grace is for people with lives that are messier than our own, at least on the outside. It means that God's grace is for people who don't understand God's law as well as we do. 
It means that the people we welcome to join us here will maybe look like they deserve God's grace and his love a little less than we do. Don't get caught up in that comparison game. That's not what your relationship with God is built on. You wouldn't want it to be. It's built on God's generous, undeserved love and nothing else. Love that he wants to give you. Love that he wants to give others. Love that he's incredibly, perplexingly generous with. Love that can't be measured because it's infinite. And when we let God's amazing generosity dominate the picture in our hearts, wonderful things happen. In a world where Christians often live up to the unbeliever's accusation that we are judgmental and holier than thou, the more we find ourselves awed at God's generosity, the harder it is to live up to that judgmental stereotype, and the easier it is for us to reflect God's love and generosity to people we might not naturally think deserve it. After all, we didn't. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He is not fair. That's not how he works. He's so generous that it just doesn't make sense. He's given us his only son. What more could he give? Instead of fighting it, rejoice in that fact. In faith, we'd have it no other way. Amen.